In her book On Photography, Susan Sontag wrote, All photographs are memento mori. To take a photograph is to participate in another person's or thing's mortality, vulnerability, mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all photographs testify to time's relentless melt. These words take on a different meaning when considering moving images that record an actual death. Is the person filming somehow complicit? Are its viewers also somehow involved? Mondo Mondo is an upcoming series at Anthology Film Archives that explores these topics. Nick Pinkerton, one of our regular contributors, programmed a variety of shockumentary films, veritable omnibuses of taboo that very often included footage of actual murders and violence. Some purport to advocate or inform, others more transparently fulfill a base curiosity about death and dying. These lurid films bear some comparison to a currently thriving phenomenon, recordings of individuals dying at the hands of law enforcement. Footage of Eric Garner, Alton Sterling, and Philando Castile has been widely circulated to serve as, quote, evidence of deeply entrenched racism and violence that Black people have historically experienced in the United States. But given the wide-ranging narratives that these videos have generated from all sides of the political spectrum, it seems that they function at multiple levels beyond their presentation as proof-positive documents of a problem. Since its inception, Film Comment has never shied away from the political or controversial when it directly related to the moving image. In the hopes of living up to this tradition, I spoke with Nick Pinkerton, Ashley Clark, and Cassie DaCosta about these complex films. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Uh, Nick Pinkerton. I programmed the series Mondo Mondo at Anthology Film Archives. Cassie DaCosta. I work uh, in production at The New Yorker and produce the Front Row Video podcast there. And Ashley Clark, contributor to Film Comment, uh, The Guardian, Vice, among others, and programmer of uh, the Black Star Film Festival at the BFI from October to December this year. Well, thank you all for coming. This topic is very broad, but it is of interest to all of us because someday we will all die. And I think that's where part of the fascination lies. And, um, and I think also it's important to note or to preface this by saying that, you know, before the advent of film, moving pictures. As a culture, or at least in the West, there was a very different um, approach to death and dying. Uh, you know, early daguerreotypes, early photography very often had photos of deceased people, deceased babies, deceased loved ones um, taken after they had died, not while they were alive in order to remember them. Um, and I think just part of what your series does, Nick, is sort of touch on the taboo of watching death, but also show sort of how it is of absolute utter interest too. Well, in his very great book slash treatise, Amos Vogel's book film as a subversive art he identifies the sort of category of thanatological cinema as being one of the last taboos 
this is, I think, in 1974 he'd be writing. Mm -hmm. And he identifies a handful of films which have crossed over in depicting unflinchingly what happens after the end of life. Uh, He talks particularly about Stan Brakhage's The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, Mm -hmm. which, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, it's comprised entirely of footage on an autopsy table in, uh, I believe, Pittsburgh morgue. Uh, very, very close up, uh, full of slithering viscera and you know, chest cavity being cracked open like a uh, you know, lobster being prepared uh, for eating. And it's so... The, the the lens is so close to what is happening that very quickly it enters the realm of abstraction and the initial repellence that one feels is replaced by something else. But a lot of the films in the Mondo Mondo series, which uh, I'm highlighting, uh, which deal specifically with the depiction of death would have appeared on the scene after Vogel was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one which he, in fact, wrote about at some length in the pages of Film Comment, if memory serves, is a movie from Belgium called De Mort, or Of the Dead, uh, principally put together by a guy called Thierry Zeno. But this movie appeared at the same time that there was a uh, an entire wave of these shockumentaries, so-called, that were coming in and replacing the early uh, Mondo movies, which tended to be comprised of original footage. And you had more and more of these films, which were sort of patchworks of uh, material, sort of found footage material. And the reason that this material was proliferating, of course, is because you had more security camera footage, you had the widespread availability of home video, so there is suddenly a uh, vast pool of this kind of material of heretofore usually unseen uh, death footage that you could get your hands on. And from Faces of Death to about the mid-1990s, you had a whole crop of these kind of compilation movies, later home videos, that were appearing. Right. And then those sort of fell off. Well, why do you think they fell off? (laughs) We have the internet. I mean, you had, first of all, any sort of cinematic aspect to, you know, the early Mondo movies going back to the early 1960s had been mostly pared away as they were replaced by these just atrocity exhibitions of... Mm -hmm you know, car accidents and, you know, people being shellacked by commuter trains and things like this. And, you know, by the early 1990s, you have things like uh, the Traces of Death uh, series, which is just nothing but Mm -hmm. snuff. And going into the end of the the fandom millennium, you can just, you know, go to, as I said, like rotten.com or something like that and you know, sate your desire for horrifying thanatological footage. Mm-hmm. So when you're putting this together as a program, you did this for true-false first. Mm-hmm. Is that what kind of, what frameworks were you using to bring it together? Because obviously a lot of this stuff that moves over into the, the internet world and it becomes a lot more deregulated, I think it's incumbent upon the kind of the viewer 
or the curator, excuse me, to to really put some kind of framework on that and and, and argue passionately for for the aesthetic qualities of, of some of this stuff. Well, the two kind of distinct periods, I suppose, that I was interested in delineating from one another were the Mondo period, which I would say runs from 1963 with uh, the release of Cavara, Prosperi, and Jacopetti's film Mondo Cane, uh, from which the subgenre of documentary takes its name, to about the end of the 1970s when you have uh, I've included in the program uh, Michael and Roberta Finley's uh, Snuff, which is this sort of simulacra of a snuff film made in South America where life is cheap, yes. per the tagline. <laughs> uh, I've included uh, Ruggiero Deodato's uh, Cannibal Holocaust, which is a innovator, let's say, in the realm of found footage horror, where it's using documentary technique uh, or an approximation of documentary technique in order to uh, create the illusion that you are seeing the final moments of a camera crew who are uh, recording the rites and rituals, or in some cases, uh, actively um, actively participating in and acting as kind of catalysts for uh, the activity of a cannibal tribe in the Amazon basin. So you have these films which we'll broadly call fiction uh, genre films which are borrowing from Mondo, uh, Mondo being these documentaries which very much count on using sort of movie movie techniques. They're very, very cinematographically constructed. They're lushly orchestrated. They're about as far as you can get from the uh, parallel verite tradition that through the uh, use of the portable Aeroflex camera is coming into its own at roughly the same time. You have some of the same kind of dodgy visual ethics that mark the Mondo movie going <laughs> that's, over... That's an understatement. Yeah, yeah, going over into the cannibal film or the slasher film. And then you have, at the same time that this cycle has kind of run its course you have the appearance of what I'll broadly call the shockumentary. And I make a designation between the two, which I don't know if it's as clear as that, but to me, something like, for example, uh, Faces of Death, which is made in 1978, but becomes a hit in Japan uh, around 1980 or so, and then comes back and becomes an actual phenomenon in the U.S., Times Square circuit. Um that to me, uh, which is a film that's an awful movie, by the way, Faces of Death, but it's very, very artless, very clumsily put together, and really relies on nothing but the sort of inducements of seeing atrocities, most of which, with the exception of an airliner, the aftermath of an airliner crash in San Diego uh, in 1978, most of which are constructed, staged uh, for the camera. Um, but in uh, response to your question about sort of mounting a defense on the uh, behalf of these films as aesthetic objects, some of them I don't know that I can, but a couple of the films which are included from the beginning of, around the beginning of the shockumentary cycle, Day Moore being one of them, uh, The Killing of America, written by Leonard Schrader and directed by Sheldon Renan, 
I think are extraordinarily interesting and powerful films that happen to have had the misfortune of appearing at approximately the same time as some kind of distaff trashy thing like Faces of Death and having been perhaps lumped in with them. And I'm trying to extract at least a few of what I think are kind of remarkable pieces of work uh, from what was not always the most defensible uh, of genres. There's a history of that kind of thing happening, um, that cluster effect. I'm thinking of something like Ganger and Hess by Bill Gunn, yeah. which came out and you know did, did Wonders It Can in 73, but the producers wanted a kind of scream, blackula scream type deal. And you know, this is where I think curation and, and advocacy comes in because if all you've got to go on is, is an image or two and a, and a plot summary. Mm. Suddenly a film ends up being being lost amid that kind of, as you said, the, the garbage of something like Faces of Death, which I trust your, your judgment. I haven't seen it. But yeah. Is it in your program? No, it's not. It's not. I okay. mean, in part because we couldn't find a good print of it, I think it is of interest if you're trying to construct a complete picture of what the shockumentary is i think as something that you actually have to sit back and watch it's complete garbage um, i do enjoy some of the framing devices which involve uh a an actor who is portraying a doctor uh, who gives some very stilted narration uh, about a sort of dream that he had, which has inspired him to delve into the subject of death. And he's wearing these, like, he's clearly been given glasses to make him look a bit smarter than he in <laughs> fact is. And he looks like some kind of slightly degraded distant relation of Kiefer Sutherland, I think. And the glasses are really askance across the bridge of his nose. They've clearly not been fitted to You're him. selling it to me, Nick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so there's some pleasure to be found in these scenes. Earlier, when we were talking how the internet came to replace these films, I wouldn't say it's a stretch to sort of connect and maybe try to understand the recent phenomenon of police brutality that has been recorded uh, where a suspect or someone who is being taken into custody is killed and their death is recorded and that death is circulated around the internet and recently Alton Sterling there was an activist group that was intentionally monitoring police activity in the area got footage of this man being killed and circulated it sort of as proof that there is a problem with law enforcement in this country however it's this this footage is obviously not just proof it's it's something larger than that i mean what your series is sort of it's telling like you say it's sort of some of it's out and out exploitation and some of it is trying to do something more and so trying to understand these records of death as something more than just a record i think is important and maybe we could try to touch on that now yeah i mean i think what's interesting about that activist group as well is that they intentionally waited to release the video. Mm -hmm. They waited for a narrative to emerge. So it was, I think also for them, it wasn't just the element of recording, but it also was rebuilding some sort of story around the footage you see. Mm -hmm. But then uh, because of the way that footage is circulated, it becomes, 
I mean, narratives emerge uh, in ways that the person releasing the video never anticipates. So it becomes a question of, I guess, as much of like the eyes that are seeing the work as those who produce it, or mm -hmm. even that the person taking the video actually isn't producing the video. They're not really creating it, but they're present for it. And I'm thinking also of Philando Castile, mm -hmm. like his having his girlfriend and his child being the ones who, who, who recorded the situation and then that being one of those videos that you watch and understand that it's not really uh, the act of video making as we understand it, even in the other cases. Uh, it's a lot further away from the act of capturing something as it is, or even witnessing something as it is being sort of present in this way that you have to be present and that you have to record it. Yeah, because um, that was something that people repeatedly commented on with the Philando Castile video is that, you know, she's saying, yes, sir, to this officer. I haven't seen it because I can't, <laughs> I, I can't watch another one of these um, mm -hmm. videos. But yeah, I think what you're getting at is really important and sort of crucial here where it's like the camera is like, it's not just changing the situation. It's changing the situation in a way that is really unprecedented and sort of new. Well, y yes and no Yeah. for me. I think... Um, of if we think back to the Eric Garner incident two mm -hmm. years ago um, in in Staten Island, when the officer Daniel Pantaleo was was filmed from a couple of angles choke you know choking Eric Garner, he subsequently died. The chokehold was revealed to be you know outlawed by the NYPD for something like twenty years or something. I've detected I've detected a real shift in what the video the what the what the product itself symbolizes in that a couple of years ago when the video entered the narrative of of the story it was seen as a beacon of hope right in the same way or a similar way that i brought along gordon parks's book a choice of weapons in the same way that when bull connor was and his cronies were filmed um in the 60s this idea that you know we we will use video documentary to stoke the, the liberal conscience uh, to kind of to use this as a crucial tool for enacting some kind of legislative change but I've noticed in the two years since these countless videos have been released and we found that the structural issues that lead to the incidents which happen within said videos are so deep-rooted um, and it's not they're not a panacea and I don't think anybody thought they would be that but I'm not sure that people thought that video footage would be quite so ineffective right. in in prompting dramatic policy change when you when you see proof when you watch things like the uh, Philander Castile video which is kind of is un un unbeatable in its horror yeah. you know with all due respect to yeah. your series there's nothing in your series um, that is going to come close to that for, for for the visceral effect of yeah. it and, and and a lot of that is down to the, the calmness and the stillness of what, what you're seeing in front of you and speaking of narrative, the guy that filmed the Eric Garner incident has now been sentenced right. to, to jail. Right. Um, the act of, of filming put a target on his own back. Right. Um, so, so the layers are, you know, the, the onion is, um, 
the onion is I'm trying coining you coining you the onion is deep. <laughs> yeah. Many that ways. could be on my Twitter bio. But you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. it's very complicated. Well, and I also think to speak to this point about narratives and uh, policy changes, we should probably go back to probably the first really big sort of blowout, uh, important mass circulated, mass distributed video of police brutality which is of Rodney King, which was incorporated into Spike Lee's Malcolm X film, which was probably one of the first, or if not the first sort of like use of that type of footage in a fictional film to really make a point. But, you know, what was unprecedented, what was sort of unique about that trial, again, to speak to the point about the mass distribution, you know, like the mass availability of VHS or of personal camcorders, is that, you know, the footage taken from afar was slowed down, was sort of, you know, if you freeze it in a certain way, it looks like he's doing something that maybe that he almost certainly was not doing, that he was a threat, that the LAPD's response was somehow, like Eric Garner's situation, a disprotocol somehow. Well, I mean, what is interesting is... And I was thinking about this uh, as the Metrograph uh, recently ran a Brian De Palma retrospective, somebody who deals extensively in the deceptions uh, Mm. of perspective, let's say. Like, who could really plumb the depths of what is going on right now quite as well as a De Palma right. <laughs> in his prime. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have anything in the offing. But to speak to the point which Ashley makes, these videos which seem to most people's eyes or many people's eyes to be incontestable evidence of something, depending on the viewer, they can be incontestable evidence of something else. It's right. almost like instant replay mm-hmm. where if you're a partisan for one team, somebody's out by a mile at third mm-hmm. base. If you're a partisan for the other, no, he misses them with the swipe. So even when you have what appears from your perspective, my perspective, somebody else's perspective to be beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, the most damning evidence imaginable. Other people look at the same thing and see something else. And, uh, you know, who who could unfurl that as well as a, uh, a De Palma? I don't know. And I also think you're dealing with liberal viewers who aren't, who are viewing it as a kind of evidence, but it's also a personal kind of, maybe not vindication, but it's Attrition. like... Attrition. Yeah. <laughs> and then it allows for... I mean, it allows for people to take on sort of black men like as a group, as this like amorphous abstract group in a way that is comfortable for them because they have artifacts. And I think all the OJ sort of hoopla that's (laughs) sort of emerged now is interesting because it's really allowed, especially with the documentary series that's come out, it's really allowed this sort of questioning into... Uh, what's true, like what does video show us, what does evidence show us in the criminal justice system, but instead of actually becoming a way to sort of break down these images and to make them uh, more nuanced and to make the bodies who are a part of them more real, it's it's just a way to go further into abstraction and further into these sort of ideological pushes like for and against policy changes that ultimately 
don't do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, recording these incidents was a policy change, having body cams and dash cams. Right. And in this, and then I think Philando Castile, or no, oh no, the Alton Sterling case, they haven't released that video or it didn't work or something like that, but it didn't matter because there were two other videos that apparently had better coverage. And then, so, and then, you know, you have Bratton saying that these people recording these videos are, you know, causing problems. Right. So there are- Well, it's like the Black Lives Matter effect. As, yeah. as in, you know, that, that's the catalyst. Yeah, for, that's, this, these are the problems. You know. like people are protesting and that's causing the violence. Um, but yeah, I think there, every opportunity was given for a kind of active empathy. Mm-hmm. I think it's being performed uh, maybe not because of the availability of the videos, but I think the availability of the videos gives people who are performative in that way a, a lot more room to perform. <laughs> because they've seen something, because they yeah. can yeah. say, I was affected. It's the ultimate by this. legitimacy, isn't it? Yeah. Right. And I keep seeing um, hyper woke individuals <laughs> in, <laughs> instructing the, the rest of us that you need to watch this. This mm-hmm. is the most mm-hmm. important thing you will watch. Mm-hmm. And it's like part of it is. Um, it's sort of a tourism. There is a tourist <laughs> element. And it's the idea that <sighs> some people do seem to be under the misapprehension that this is happening. This has just started happening now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mamie Till released the photograph of Emmett Till, mm-hmm. you know, 60 years ago, whenever. Um, th- this is not new. Th- these things have always happened. And I think you, you, that performative aspect that you're talking about, I find very troubling. And I'm glad mm-hmm. you brought it up because it's something that, that jars me generally um, in, in the age that, we, that we're in now. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's an endemic, I think. Epidemic, excuse me. Endemic of something well, else. Because, I mean, the thing, the other thing to really mention is that Philando Castile's mother saw this video before she saw her son's body. Like, because of the way that Facebook works, it autoplays videos and you can't even, like, elect whether you see something or not now. And and again, coming to, like, this bizarre sort of performative aspect, these social media companies are sort of complicit in this, but also, again, not... Yeah, it's, it's it's a bizarre sort of... Yeah, I, I have a hard time sort of putting my finger on it, but it's they're they're complicit in a way, but also they're benefiting from this in some way. You know, like Uber, when you order an Uber, it'll say, you know, please meditate on gun violence while you wait for your car. Like it really or or you know, over Pride weekend, like, you know, Uber is always, you know, we love our gay friends and blah blah, you know, all this, you know, and it again this very performative thing in these companies that really have more control are getting increasingly more control over our lives than the government does, especially when it comes to things like this, or at least, and not just, and not just expression, but literally, you know, physical control. So. I also, yeah, they have an incredible legitimizing power because I remember somebody posting like Google's message about supporting black lives matter. And that somehow really resonating with a lot of people being like, oh, Google supports this. And it's, you know, the ubiquity of corporate. I mean, if you go to Pride Parade, it's all corporate. Right. And now Black Lives Matter gets corporatized. And it, I mean, it co- goes back to the body cam thing. Like, ultimately, this is a sort of, oh, this is sort of a change like that is not going to actually result in the bodies in question being higher in consideration it's more about who's giving off the message 
posturing in in in, in the right way. Um, and, and where does it end? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Where does this this end? Because the killings aren't going to stop anytime soon. I wouldn't have thought. No. So, <laughs> what you know? Where where will we be in two years from now? If 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 we can kind of mark the Eric Garner video as the beginning of a of a certain wave of how 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 these kind of videos are, are being curated and disseminated by on social media, mm. where will we be in two years? Something bigger and better than the trifist hashtag of BLM, mm. which is. So I don't know. It, it just it just strikes me as so gauche, but whatever. I mm. mean, we're sort of getting away from visual culture here, but mm. I don't well, know. we're talking about the, the Kate plays Christine thing a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, mm. uh, and there's may, maybe a certain base human interest in grotesque images, mm -hmm. um, of on, of which these videos that we speak of, you know, certainly come under that that radar. So maybe we could talk a bit about uh, Robert's film, and I don't know if anyone in here has seen it. I still haven't. Mm. Well, yes, I've seen I've seen Kate plays Christine, and I mean, part of the the real crux of that is trying to recreate a famous televised suicide mm -hmm. by a Sarasota area newswoman called Christine Chubbuck, and after searching high and low through Sarasota for actual the actual footage, which is the stuff of legend they come up empty-handed. Um, and it's sort of a labyrinth without a center, uh, you might say. I mean, far more pertinent, I guess, to the series I put together is uh, Mr. R. Bud Dwyer, the Pennsylvania state treasurer, yes. who famously was videotaped uh, at a press conference, which was held for him to address some kind of issues of malfeasance. yeah pulled a 357 Magnum out of a manila envelope, put it into his mouth, and blew his brains out, after which uh, a faucet-like stream of blood comes gushing out of his nose, and there's a general fracas. And this video was widely circulated. It's in one of the Traces of Death uh, tapes that I spoke about. And this is, I don't know, a very a very i don't i don't know that i had ever seen something quite like that uh before and in uh in looking into the mondo movies it's really only about the time of africa audio which i think you've seen yeah where you see some actual snuffing out of human lives on camera Mo uh, they're congolese rebels being shot down by soldiers of fortune which was quite a uh, quite an area of controversy at the time because all manner of ethical questions were raised, uh, as you know happens throughout the uh, sort of timeline of the Mondo film. Would these shots be taken both you know, with a camera and mm -hmm. with a gun? Were the camera crew not present? Right. To what degree are they complicit? To what degree are they engineering? Mm -hmm what's happening in front of them. And then in the case of a Christine Chubbuck or a Bud Dwyer, you have people who are sort of the auteurs of their own snuff videos who are performing their own demises, uh, which I think marks some kind of new phenomenon. I guess you can also look at Yukio Mishima, who yeah. stages his own seppuku <laughs> suicide a couple years before 
uh, you know, does a little dry run before actually uh, unraveling his guts. Last year there on Mr. Robot, the, uh, the, there was um, a shooting in a newsroom shooting in Virginia. And there was a, a scene in Mr. Robot which copied the used the Bud Dwyer incident as its base. And it was actually um, suspended from airing uh, because it would have been seen as tasteless. What, why it was tasteful a week later um, is open to, to question. But, you know, that that looms large, I think, in the the, the, the consciousness of, of, um, of the country. Because, as you said, I mean, I watched that, the Bud Dwyer thing, because I hadn't heard of it until the Mr. Robot thing that it referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing to me that it was, I mean, unfortunate timing, but to, to kind of shelve it and say, oh, we'll put it on next week and it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Struck me as bizarre. Yeah, the, the Bud Dwyer thing had was strangely ubiquitous among young people uh, of my generation. I was born at the end of 1980 and like... I mean, you had filters, hey man, nice shot. So shout out <laughs> yep. to Bud Dwyer. There you go, yeah. Many people in my you know, social circle when <laughs> I was a teenager could kind of quote it chapter and verse. Yep. Now, Bud, show some decorum. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of decorum and maybe the Good role transition. Of the, and of the state, <laughs> uh, I think, it, well, another film that you're showing uh, in your series is Adio, Uncle Tom, yeah. which is... Adio, Zio, Tom. Yeah, Adio, Dio, 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 Tom. It almost sounds like a little fun nursery rhyme when you say it like that. But it is, in fact, there was a certain backlash to 12 Years a Slave that, you know, oh, this is sort of just recreating this historical trauma for the sake. It's just sort of, it's sort of pornography. And this, and Goodbye, Uncle Tom is really, these people were, you know, it was filmed in Haiti under, got, yeah, Papa Doc. To pa- Papa under Papa Doc. For, not only was it filmed in Haiti under Papa Doc, well, but the, the filmmakers they every were, week literally sat down to dinner. Yes, they were literally <laughs> dining. Papa Doc Duvalier. Yes, uh, in the yeah in the presidential palace. And they were in Haiti in the first place so that they mm. could have access to a large pool of black actors <sighs> <clears throat> who would work essentially for slave rates, and the right. film. It should be stated briefly is a kind of documentary simulacra imagining Prospero and Jacopetti setting down via helicopter in antebellum Louisiana mm-hmm. and watching the entire process of uh, slaves arriving from the Middle Passage being processed, deloused, uh, given forceful <laughs> enemas and so on and so forth. It's about the most utterly compromised movie that you can possibly come across. Yeah. It is also the only movie or very nearly the only movie to depict any of this process mm-hmm. for decades upon decades. Certainly uh, the only movie to do so with such almost gleeful detail. Don't forget the frame story. Do you want to elaborate uh, briefly? I on mean, that? Ash, I know this is uh, this is like one of the first things that we bonded over is our mutual. This makes that makes us sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> our mutual queasy affection. We made uh, <laughs> <remain> a chat room. <laughs> <laughs> we met on Rotten.com, actually. <laughs> no, I'll let you. I'll let you describe the framing. Well, it's. 
is it set is contemporary? Is it early seventies? Yeah, early seventies. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but there's a. Was it? It's kind of like a revolt, uh, like a, a, a Black Panther style. Guy's sitting on the beach in what presumably is meant to be Florida, and he's reading autobiography of Nat Turner, and uh, then with you know, Afro black leather jacket, basically panthered out, and the movie, at least the Italian version, uh, ends with a home invasion scene where they go into uh, himself and several kind of panther-esque black radical cohorts go into the home of a you know middle-class white family, and the kind of ultimate image of the film is a blonde toddler being smashed against the wall. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, there's so really it's kind something of like a, for everyone to be mortified by. Very much so. It's a yeah, contemporary restaging of, of Nat Turner's Rebellion, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Which is supposed to throw the rest of the movie into relief. There's this incredibly disingenuous call, I think, for, on the filmmaker's behalf um, for, for the black man of the, the 1970s in America to rise up again so that we may not see <laughs> what we've just forced down your throat for the last two hours. Um it's quite something. I mean, it's hard, you know, it, I'm I'm not of the opinion that you should pre-warn viewers too much before you see things, mm. but there something comes along occasionally where you a disclaimer is um, advised, and I think this is something to this is particular. This is one of those films where I think that's applicable. Yeah. Know, know that you're in for something before you sit down and watch it. Yeah, because it's it's one thing to say that these things are being reenacted, but it's incredible to see these extras again. Giant human piles of of black bodies in Haiti. Yeah. Um, it's very upsetting. Yeah. And, I mean, there's no way around it. And when presenting uh, these movies at True False, uh, you know, to speak to your point about some precursor, when you're showing people Goodbye Uncle Tom, you have to say... I mean, unless you truly believe otherwise, you have to say this is at best a problematic proposition, yeah. this movie, um, to use a word that is horribly, horribly overused, mm -hmm. but it exists. It is the only attempt, however horribly, intrinsically, and totally front to back flawed it is, it's about as good a try as anyone made to address this historical fact in the sort of epic fashion. Right. And you could certainly make a pertinent, uh, you could certainly make an argument that it deserves to be swept into the dustbin of history. I have that, I mean, the very, the very urge to look that Ashley was speaking to earlier, like, it certainly pertains with these films and it pertains to a certain extent with, you know, the bad objects of our, uh, you know, film historical, uh, legacy in general. I, I can't help but want to dig them out because they're troublesome and they don't give you a perch. You feel soiled after watching them and, I want to share that feeling. It's worth reading Roger Ebert's review um, of the film, which is online, for an example of a reflexive, an impassioned yet reflexive dismissal of something that does contain multitudes, however troublesome, that we've, that we've been discussing, and how influential 
um, cultural commentators can and you know can have the the effect of um, delegitimizing something or sweeping it under the carpet, mm. and how important that is. You know, his is the first a kind of major review that comes up, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you read that and were convinced by it, you'd never even get get to get beyond a point where you could look into what the film was trying to do, aesthetically, however morally or uh, ideologically re- reprehensible it may be. Yeah, that actually reminds me of sort of the reaction, like the dual reactions that Kara Walker's work, which was that, yes, yes. you know, she was really accepted by white critics and really lo- her work was really loved. And then there were some, I mean, black, I think Lorna Simpson was like one of the people who really was against her work. And I think it sort of came down to this question of what, what people saw in her work is that it's aestheticized in a very particular way. There's a sort of unique kind of beauty to her work, but black people, I think, would identify immediately what it was in a way that maybe her white critics weren't, mm. um, or, in, or in a way that like, didn't personally implicate them enough to discuss them. Um, and so when you're talking about the idea of Roger Ebert seeing this film and being disgusted enough by it to dismiss it fully, it, like, it begs the question of like who's authoring it and, and how comfortable is is a critic made to feel around the work and how implicated and I think that sort of also controls like the images we get to see and the ones we don't like what gets to be circulated are the visual elements allowing you to reconcile your own um, place in history or are they sort of throwing you at sea like leaving you disgusted and unable to sort of rattle um, yourself from what you've seen something that was really interesting I think about the um that small burst of movies that came out about slavery from, you know, there was Lincoln, then 12 Years a Slave and, and Django Unchained, which were two kind of diametrically opposite films, was about, I remember Ar- Armand White uh, writing quite a lot and citing um, Charles Burnett's Night John, as, which is a wonderful film, which kind of dares to show humor and humanity on on the plantation among the slaves and that was something that Steve McQueen got really hit with his his a lot a lot of the criticism of of his his film was that it was just devoid of of warmth and humanity and it was used as a tool to kind of draw just simply draw reactions and something that goodbye uncle tom uh, does it does it does use humor doesn't it it kind of provokes oh, totally. it's really weird like like the kind of things that the, the tone the, that it strikes well, and you're the like, voiceover Whoa. is just so jovial it's yeah and then well i mean that's that's all jacopetti he always yeah. wrote the voiceovers and it's interesting also to look at their follow-up or the last sort of official collaboration between prosperia and jacopetti which is their only proper fiction outing and it's candide <laughs> and that's that's clearly how they perceived themselves as sort yeah. of satirist philosophes who were observing the follies of the civilized world, so uh, so called. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that tone always comes off, uh, that's something else entirely. But that's clearly how they perceived themselves as these sort of arch observers of the follies of man. Yeah, and you, you mean you mentioned Kara Walker and, and the humor inherent in her work. Yeah. You know, that was kind of what got me thinking about that and how infusing humor into subject matter so bleak is often a bridge too far for some people, some viewers, maybe the more inherently conservative. How mm-hmm. dare you treat a subject right. 
like this right. with anything other than grave reverence. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with her sugar baby, you have this incredible scene of, of her sort of playing a game that I think if I mean, if you're talking about artistic intention, I think she understands the conflict that sort of erupts when you have people who are directly implicated by the Im- this image versus people who aren't and just see it as a spectacle or even just as an art- as an artifact or as an art object how you have those people in the same room ex- having different experiences under the same sort of curation and for her to under curate it mm-hmm. to sort of not explain it and to just present the objects and to leave you in this very large, hot room with it. I think, you know, film has this ability to do that in a very different way. And it be- and it becomes a conflict because there's this sort of narrative structure that you're expecting or anticipating. So you're asking to sort of be carried by it. Or you're like when you're talking about when they try to flip the narrative at the end of the film in order to justify the first two hours of what you've seen. Like that's a version of that kind of curation. Mm-hmm. And because it's so compact... Something like Kara Walker's work has more room for elision because of, I mean, you have spectators coming in and out and you have people who are able to like have a protest at her Mm -hmm. uh, exhibition or like have, there was like a teach-in where people sat down to talk about what these images meant. At a film, you don't really get that. You get critics who determine how this thing is going to be seen. Um, and so it becomes less of like this artifact that's meant to be dealt with and more of this thing that sometimes it's just like is there and is supposed to signify something directly. Um, and hopefully the critic is doing the work of emphasizing the complications that are there, obviously. But I think sometimes you get trapped in that because it's this sort of more lonely visual experience than it, what it would be to like see a piece of art or to go to a big exhibition. I think spaces are kind of inherently coded, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, when you go and see a film, you broadly know what you're there for, to sit down for two hours and then go away again. Mm-hmm. With the transience of an art space, mm-hmm. it's very different. It's completely what you say. I think online spaces are starting to be coded, yeah. inscribed increasingly with how you're supposed to react with things, how you're supposed to like and share, what you can comment on. You what won't you believe can't. Mm-hmm. this video. This yeah. video destroys xyz like it's like the yeah it's very true it's sort of it's uh there are learned behaviors of how to in you know how you interact with social media and you know you kind of when you're in it you know when you're kind of in in the midst of those kind of dramatic changes which the the prior generation were not it's hard to quantify but i think i'm starting to see that's why i brought up earlier that kind of framework of two years Mm -hmm. you know it's almost two years to the day i think since um uh the eric garner incident which I believe was July 2014. I'll, we can double check that. But um, and even since then, I've just seen incredible set of learned behaviors at, at how people interact with videos and how the discourse has changed. Yeah. But not policy. Fortunately, not. Yeah. I, I thought I wanted to mention quickly Fruitvale Station. Yes. Just how just how differently um, Ryan Coogler uses the Oscar Grant footage Mm -hmm. in comparison to how Spike Lee used the Rodney King footage at the start of Malcolm X. Um, I thought it was really bold of of Ryan Coogler in a kind of um, his calling card picture to kind of put this kind of document up front and say what follows is a fictional reconstruction. What what, What you're seeing here is what happened. And, and that just struck me as an interesting artistic choice. What Spike Lee was doing in, in Malcolm X is obviously this kind of 
rhetorical montage with the burning flag. You know, the, the American flag burning into the shape of an X. Spike Lee doesn't do understatement, no. generally. Um, and it was just interesting to, to writing about Fruitvale Station to watch those back to back and just look at how these, how these, um, how these videos, how the, these kind of documents of, of carnage are being integrated into art, and, and maybe how they will continue to be by a new generation of very kind of cine literate y young filmmakers and, and people who can do it themselves more. I'd be really interested to see how how the integration of such content develops and, and to, to what end. There's a um, Sam Fuller movie, uh, Verboten, which uh, takes place in Germany shortly after World War II, and it deals with the sort of renaissance of and the lingering of uh, Nazi sentiment. And particularly one of the plots involves a, a young German boy who is being taught the of romance of the failed cause who at one point in the film is forcefully shown images from a concentration camp and they are real images from a concentration camp smack mm -hmm. in the middle of you know what is otherwise a completely fictional document uh and normally there would be something that smelled a bit off about this but perhaps because i know that Sam Fuller was present at the liberation of Falconau and took mm -hmm. footage with the 16 millimeter camera, it to me is overwhelmingly powerful. Um, and I'm certain that there are many other instances of this, the kind of integration of very disturbing... Uh, JFK? Yes, well, the, the original, yeah. you know, Thanatological uh, masterpiece, the Zapruder film, mm -hmm. which is kind of the starting off point of Leonard Schrader and Sheldon Renan's uh, The Killing of America. Um, and I actually wanted to briefly, because uh, Sheldon Renan came out to Columbia, Missouri, and uh, presented The Killing of America, mm -hmm. which is to put it very succinctly and sort of simplistically, a impassioned call for gun control. Uh, and I think a movie that is very, very important to use a turn of phrase that I detest is relevant now as ever. Uh, <laughs> he came out and did a Q&A and one of the questions addressed to him was on the subject of the sort of ethics of showing these, you know, Thanatological images showing these death images and he gave a response that moved me tremendously at the time uh, And luckily somebody recorded so I just thought I might read from that uh, He talks about having a revelation when he went to see for the first time uh, deep throat uh, in New York City and uh, goes on to uh, to explain this uh, this revelation, he says, uh, I realize that the things that are forbidden for us to see, images of birth, images of sex, images of death and dying, are things that we need to see. We need to have a great deal of information about the world in which we live. We need to have even more information than we had 35 years ago because we have more power, more access, more capability, and we live longer, deeper, and more complex lives. We need to know as much as we can learn about everything that happens to human beings, good and bad. Well, on that note, maybe we can end it. Um, but before we close, uh, 
I think it would be interesting to just go around quickly and uh, talk about a film that we've seen recently that we liked. Ashley, would you like to start? Uh, well, I just I just saw the best film I've seen this year. Yeah. But I can't talk about it because I signed an NDA. <gasps> so sorry about that. Uh. So instead, <laughs> I will go for... Oh, um, okay, fairly recently, I saw Possession for the first time. Oh, wow. Zulawski with um, Isabel Ajani and Sam Neill. Probably the, the, the least laid back film I've ever seen. <laughs> um, you won't believe what this divorce comes Yeah, does. I mean, it's just incredible kind of mashup of um, many different styles and techniques and roving kind of proto Alan Clark steady cam use and Nicholas Rogue bad timing, emotional torment. Um, and I was laughing and probably cried at some <laughs> point. Um, and it's rare to see a film that you literally don't know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's cult reputation is, is uh, fully justified, says I. <laughs> uh, yeah, I recommend it. Check it out. Take a date. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just saw the Benoit Jaco, uh, a Toot Suite, right now, I think is a the translation they use, which is... I didn't like it after I saw it and then later on realized I liked it. It's like, it's a, you know, it's got like sort of the typical aesthetic of, I think, films at the time in the early 2000s in France that tried to like harken back to new wave cinema. Um, It's a story of a girl who uh, sort of meets this guy, doesn't really know who he is, has an immediate attraction to him, that kind of story. Um, She finds out that he, you know, has robbed a bank and, him and his friend have killed someone. He never really specifies who actually pulled the trigger. She goes with him uh, to a bunch of different places, runs away with him without question. And I think it has this weird sort of, um, it's like if if a Cassavetes film were quieter, almost. It has like this attention Mm. to its actors. that's like very lived in, but very quiet. And so, you know, I was sort of unconvinced by it the first time around, but then was kind of entranced by like what that kind of presence was doing. Um, Yeah. Well, risk of coming off as a broken record because I know I've already stumped for the shallows this year, (laughs) but I've been going through the Jaime Colazzera filmography Mm. for something that uh, I'm going to write. And I revisited for the first time since it was in theaters in 2009, uh, his movie Orphan. And I must say, it is one of the most extravagantly psychologically cruel studio pictures that I can remember being released in my lifetime. I mean... I would almost classify it alongside, you know, Euro sickies like who can kill a child or, or in a glass cage or something. It's it's level of depravity, not merely in terms of threatening bodies, children's bodies, but in terms of the incredibly elaborate scenarios of psychological uh, distress that it runs. Uh, two young parents through, particularly uh, the wife and mother, played by Vera Farmilia. It's 
incredibly exhaustively inventive in its awfulness, and I really loved it. <laughs> so that would be mine. Ugh. What's yours, Violet? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I've been going through rewatch or see for the first time Spike Lee phase, and I for the first time I saw Jungle Fever, which is really i mean it's funny because there are so many moments of great truth in that film and then the ending is just like <laughs> somebody you know ba-dum-ts. like i don't even i don't even know how like i was it belongs in the museum of great truly inexplicable endings oh my <laughs> god it's like i yeah but um so let's pretend so i'm just going to talk about everything up to that point i loved more than anything else um just like more than it being a great portrait of, you know, 90s New York, a New York that is really not around anymore. Neighborhoods, people, uh, traditions, the the familial dynamics that are every family is unhappy in their own way sort of thing. Uh, I just love seeing like Wesley Snipes playing a man who is a great dad, but a terrible husband. Like I just, it was like, wow, all right. Like it sucks that he is, uh, that A, that he had to go to jail for so long for tax evasion of all things. And then it also sucks that he doesn't just like get to do more range and is just like, I don't know, blade. You could not be preaching to the choir more. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it's a fine performance. Yeah. Um, It's a film of very kind of a, a broad spectrum of performances you've yeah. got Samuel L. Jack I like getting high oh god <laughs> um, yes and yes. Anthony Quinn giving the hammiest performance I think I've as yeah. the, the rather unhappy father <laughs> rather um, unhappy yes yeah to my understatement <laughs> Ozzie Davis Ozzie Davis as another unhappy father John yeah. Turturro as the yes. kind of nice guy and Tyra st- Farrell who's another you know, White Men Can't Jump is another film mm-hmm. that Nick and I bonded on Rotten.com over. Um, <laughs> the Rotten.com Yeah, and you know, she, she had this kind of run of films around a similar time. Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. Jungle Fever, White Men Can't Jump. Another actor who, for, for, for whatever reason, the roles were not available, the roles dried up. Mm-hmm. Bad luck. Um, you know, the general prejudice of, 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 of Hollywood kind of got nowhere, but she's great in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But... All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. 